0: Thank you, Jamie. Well, if you haven't already, turn to John chapter six, and we're covering a kind of a wide path of text this morning. Um, so let me let me give you my goal for this morning, and and then kind of give you just a brief outline, because um, the, the 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 area we're in this morning. In, in in a lot of evangelical churches is a is a very hotly debated area. Um, it, it deals a lot with uh, it deals a lot with election. Um, and so we're here this morning. And as you know, as we preach through the Bible, we we ha- we come to texts and we can't ignore them. You know, we, we have to deal with them. And, and, and we should and I, I hope to lift up and show that there are wonderful treasures in this text that every Christian should lay hold of. So, that, that's that's one of my goals this morning. Um, but specifically, here's what I'd like to do. I, I want to provide a balanced approach to understanding the genuine of, uh, offer of the gospel to all people in the salvific call of God through that very same gospel. Basically, I want to assert that the gospel has both potential and power, that it has potential and power and draw implications out of it. So, here, here's my outline one, to show the potential of the gospel that there is a genuine offer to all people and show that from the context of the narrative here. Um, I want to show how Jesus sort of pivots in verse 36. Um, There's a shift that happens. And if you're reading the narrative along and you're you're paying attention, you notice this because what he says, what follows verse 36 almost seems kind of out of the blue. It's like, why did you put this here? Okay, but he pivots there. So I want to, I want to, I'm going to stop there just briefly, uh, because it's worth our considering what's happening. Um, And then lastly, I want to talk about the power of the gospel, namely the specific calling and keeping of God, Um, because, and and I'm basically going to say, I'm going to point out from verses uh, 37 to 40, and then verse 44, or yeah, um, seven statements of the power of God in the gospel. Okay, I'm not going to spend a ton of time on them. I could; we'd be here all afternoon, you know, and you guys would thank me for it. Um, but we're not. Okay, I'm just going to give those statements, make a brief comment or two, because honestly, I think they stand alone by themselves. Um, you know, so I want to do that, um, and then I'll just draw out some implications of it. Okay, so potential of God in the narrative, or the, excuse me, the potential of the gospel uh, as a genuine call to all people, and that's here in the narrative. Um, but then the specific power of God in that very same gospel that Jesus points to, okay? So that's where we are this morning. Um, and, and just kind of as a, as a way of, of intro... I know m- many of you, and we 'll come back to this when we get to the application. I know many of you are, are like me, you love the doctrines of grace, and you you cling to them because they provide a wonderful framework of larger theological concepts that are going on in scripture, and they 're so helpful when we come to texts like this, not that we create these doctrines and then we read them into the text, but that they that they they're pulled from all of these other scriptures that give clarity to the gospel and give clarity to the scriptures. But then others, I know there are some that that struggle with these things, struggle with some of these doctrines, say, I don't really fully believe this or I don't fully accept that, and that's okay. And that's part of the reason I want to provide a balanced approach to this this morning. Alan and I were talking about this text and, and you know, how we would each kind of handle it differently. And, and a- Alan has a broader theological scope and training than I do. And so he would naturally, you know, say, all right, here are the different views on election. And then he would pull one out and say why why he believes this is, you know, th- this is the one that stands out and, and, and the reasons before it. Um, I'm I'm not broadly spectrum like Alan is, and so that's not my natural bent. And so my natural bent is to go to the text itself and say, I'm going to pull one view out of it and argue. Here's why I think this is this this makes the most sense from this text. I'm not going to give a larger, you know, topical sermon on uh, on the doctrine of election, but just go right here and say, okay, well what can we say is true in this text? Um, and, and, and like I said, provide a balance because I think oftentimes what happens is for those that love the doctrines of grace, we tend to move to one side of the spectrum and those that reject either all or some of those doctrines fall to the other side. So I want to try and provide that balanced approach for us because the question all uh, Christians have to answer is, or one of the questions, why doesn't everybody who hears the gospel believe it? Why does, why does, why does the the intellectual uh, 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 engineer who who ex- extremely analytical, extremely thoughtful, given a clear presentation of the gospel, rejects it, but then the guy next to him does why does why does a a young man who grows up totally removed from any sort of good gospel influence suddenly have the gospel presented to him in a bumbling, fumbling way by an un- uneducated janitor and the gospel clicks and it changes his life. And another young man who grows up in, uh, in a loving Christian home and is fed the gospel and looks like here's a fertile field where the gospel's going to grow totally grows up and rejects it. Why does that happen? Every, every Christian has to wrestle with that. about the unlikely convert like Paul it's an important question in our culture because where we are the vast majority of America knows of a Jesus and probably believes in a Jesus but does not believe in the Jesus and so many are moving away from the Jesus why is that happening it's something we have to wrestle with And there's huge implications for our lives and how we interact with people. And so this is a crucial thing that if you know the Jesus of the Scripture and you you hunger and thirst for him, and I'm going to point to that here in a little bit, but that in order for us to rightly reflect Christ in our dealings with other people, whether they're lost people or fellow brothers and sisters in, in Christ, we, that we walk a balanced line in this aspect of of God's sovereignty and man's responsibility. so want I want to present that this morning and I present it because I think it's here. I think it's very clear from the text here that John gives us that that is clear. All right, so the first first point of this is deals with the context of of the narrative there's the potential for the gospel that the gospel is a genuine Call to repentance and faith to all people, okay? This really comes from the text that was dealt with last week. And one of the wonderful things about Scripture is you can hold up Scripture to the light and kind of like a diamond, when you hold it up to the light, you can't see every facet of it a lot of times but you hold it up and you look at it once, you'll see one aspect. You turn it slightly, you'll see another. So where, where Alan last week lifted up that text and we looked at that as Jesus being the bread of life, not just coming to alleviate earthly sufferings, but to save us from our sins, to be the greater bread in essence. I, w- I want to take that same text and just briefly, I'm not going to spend a lot of time on it, but just turn it slightly. And so we see that same point, but from a different perspective. Okay, so here's what here's what's happened. Jesus had just fed the five thousand. Remember, five thousand Jews. All right, five thousand plus uh, if we consider the women and the children. He's fed them with with bread or with bread and with the fish, and they've made a connection. Okay, did you, if you caught that in the narrative, at the very end of the narrative, Jesus feeds them. You know, they're satisfied. Their tummies are full. He collects uh, leftover baskets, and it says that they. Is They saw the sign which he had performed and they said, this is truly the prophet who is coming to the world. So Jesus, perceiving that they were intending to come and take him by force to make him king, withdrew again to the mountain by himself alone. (coughs) So did you catch that? These are not just some, you know, podunk townspeople who don't really know much of anything and are like, hey, this guy's going to feed us. This is great. Uh, these are Jews who are very religious. They're very devout and they know their Old Testament. They've made the connection with what Jesus did in distributing food to what Moses did in the Old Testament when he, when he called down manna from heaven, basically, when the Lord gave manna to the people, okay? And, G- and, uh, and they've made that connection say, hey, this guy, this guy's pr- he looks like he's the promised prophet that, jo- that, uh, that Moses spoke about in Deuteronomy 18, They're making this connection. And so they come to him later after Jesus Jesus has walked on water. All right, and he's gone away. He's over in Capernaum now. And in this this new section where he's speaking, he's teaching in the synagogue. And the people have found him. and, And they've said, hey, do the bread thing again. But Jesus knows their heart. He knows their heart. And he knows that they're... They're seeking him to ease earthly discomforts rather than save their souls. That's why he speaks to them. He says, do the work. Uh, hang on, I am lost myself. <laughs> he says, I truly, truly, I say to you, you don't seek me uh, not because you saw signs, because you ate the blows and were filled. Do the work for the food which doesn't perish. Uh, or, or do, the wor- do, the, do the work. Do not work for the food which perishes, but for the food which endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give you for on him the Father God has set his seal. And they say, well, well yeah, okay, do the sign thing again. We're, we're tracking with you. We want to do this, and we want you to be king so that you can overthrow Caesar. You know, what Moses did in Egypt, we want you to do that here. We, we, we get this. Okay, but do the sign thing again. Do the, do the bread and the fish thing. And Jesus is like, you don't get it. I'm, there's a greater bread that I'm here for. And so what follows is this, in this discourse is Jesus explaining that I'm a different kind of savior from what you're looking for. And he uses this bread. He uses this, this, this bread imagery. He says, the bread you're looking for is, is of a tangible nature. But the bread that, I've, uh, that I am is a greater bread. You, you want to be saved from the slavery of Roman oppression. I'm come to save you from the slavery of your sins. And so in this discourse that follows, they start grumbling and complaining, right? When he, when he says, I've come down out of heaven. You want a bread that comes down out of heaven that, uh, that eases your discomforts, gives you land, makes sure that, that, that your children are well. I'm the greater bread that's come down. And they argue about this. It says that they grumble. And then later he, he, he goes further and he says I'm the bread and not only that the bread that I give is going to be my flesh and they start fighting. They start fighting amongst themselves. You see what's happening is most of the people and, and as we go through this and I want to preach more on this next week what we see in this narrative is most of the people who had been following Jesus at this point they desert him. But some begin to see him a little more clearly they begin to see just how great a Savior He is. And so what you see in this narrative is Jesus is making a genuine offer of the gospel to everyone who's present, all of these people. That's when He says in verse 35, that's why I asked Jamie to to start there. He said, Jesus says to them, I'm the bread of life. He who comes to me will not hunger and he who believes in me will never thirst. That's a genuine offer of the gospel to people. He, anyone who hungers and thirsts, not for the bread which perishes, but for the bread that doesn't perish, come to me. It's a, it's a genuine call to everyone. But they're responsible for how they respond. Verse 36, he says, But I said to you, you've seen me, yet you don't believe. It's Jesus who sees into the hearts of Sam and Jennifer and, and Tiberius, and I mean, I don't know the Jews' names, you know but all these individual people who are out here, and he's going, I'm seeing into your heart, the vast majority of you, you're not believing. But there are some who are hungry and thirsting for more than, than what they were initially thinking. And so that, that's, that's important for us to recognize that, that Jesus here, especially if you, if you love the doctrines of grace, And if you're a big tauter of election, there is a a general call of the gospel that Jesus is giving here. That's a real call. Okay? He's not just kind of playing the line. This is a real call to all people. All right? But then in verse 36, he pivots. He shifts. And he says... But I say that you, that you've seen me and yet you don't believe. And then he begins these statements of the power of God and the gospel. But let's pause right here at the pivot because what's happening in the happening in the narrative so far is Jesus is, he's giving this call. He's giving this call. He's trying to explain to the people, I'm greater than what you're looking for. And he's getting ready to make that very graphic, very specific, and many people are going to leave him. And so to the casual reader, it begins to look like God's plan is failing, right? God sent his son into the world to save the Jews, and the Jews aren't believing him. What, did, what does John say in the beginning of, uh, of his gospel? He came to his own, and his own did not receive him. By the way, this is the same line of argument that, that Paul makes when you get to Romans 9. He, he gives this, chapters 1 through 8, just this phenomenal explanation of the, of the fall of man and how sinful man is, you know, from the Gentile to the Jew, uh, all are under sin and the glory of God in the, go- in the gospel and justifying. And, and, and that in Romans 8, just this wonderful chapter of the blessing of redemption and all, all all that's entailed in there, nothing can separate us from the love of God. And then he hears his accuser standing there going, wait a minute. What about the all these Jews are not believing? If the power of God in the gospel is so strong, why are so many not believing? And that's where Roman nine, Romans 9 comes from. Now, we're not in Romans 9, so I'm not going to go there, but it just just to show you that if you've heard arguments regarding election from Romans 9, it's not out of the blue that this is in other places in Scripture. But we're going to stay. We're going to dance right here in, in John 6 because this is, this is where we are. But I just wanted to point to that. So the question you get to here is Jesus is saying all who, who hunger and thirst come to me, but none are coming. At least the vast majority are not. So the question is God wills that people be saved. So can the will of God to save people be trumped by their unbelief. That's kind of the elephant that's in the room here. This is back to our question of why do some believe and some not? Does the final determinative factor in a person's salvation, and this is kind of the key question, what determines here? Is the final determinative factor in a person's salvation, does that rest on their absolute freedom to muster up faith within themselves? Or is it in the grace of God to open their eyes to the glory of salvation in Jesus? Said another way, is the the image of God intact enough that a person can of their own free volition without any intervention from God see their need for Jesus and come to Him? Or did man's sin in the garden so wreck our hearts that the that only, uh, only, only, only an intervention of God can bring us to repentance and faith. That's the, that's the question here. And and many get hung up on this, th- th- this question because we, we say, well, man's really not that bad. Man's re- there's there's enough goodness in there that it can be reclaimed. That's why some of those doctrines are, are so important. The doctrine of total depravity doesn't say that man, is, uh, that, that man is as bad off as he can be, or that, that, that man is as bad as he can be. He's as bad off as he can be, right? There's a common grace element that, that God lays on humanity that we're not all just complete murderers and thieves, but we're as bad off in our sin nature as we can be that we don't get to this point and say, well, this person deserves salvation. That's what we say is, well, that's not fair. That's not fair. We look at at somebody else that we know in our experience and uh, maybe a friend or a coworker or a family member say, you know, this person is caring and loving and generous, but they reject Jesus. Surely they deserve something here. And, And I think if we're honest we look at this person and go, this person is morally better than me and I'm a Christian. And so if they deserve something, then surely I should deserve something. When in reverse, we should look at it and go, if God lays out that our goodness, that our moral horizontal goodness without his grace is as filthy rags, then how good is my goodness that I think that I have This side of the cross. It completely reshapes our understanding of grace. Lifts high the value of Jesus in the gospel. So that's the question here. I get to this point with Jesus and he's talking with the people and they're not understanding. Is the will of God being trumped by the unbelief of man here? God's sitting there wringing his hands, going, Just I want wish somebody would wish somebody believe in my son. I wish somebody believed. believe. Up to this point, we see Jesus really as, a, as an evangelist. From, from, here's salvation from man's perspective. He's offering the gospel. Some believe, some don't. And he knows this, and he sees it. But he pivots now at verse, thir- verse 36, and here's where we see that element of his divinity come out in his omniscience. And he pivots now and he begins to speak about salvation from God's perspective. He shifts. And, and I see in here in these, these next verses he gives seven statements of the power of God and the gospel. And, and I kind of imagine John writing this. Remember John was present during this. And I, I can imagine he was one of the ones who was probably arguing. He was probably one of the ones who was grumbling. Struggling here. Who is this Jesus? Who is this? this is the drumbeat you see through all the Gospels. Who is this Jesus? Building and building and building on the clarity of who this man is that's come into the world. And John's writing, on this, looking back really with fondness and appreciation for this event. This was a hallmark in his, his life that he wants to share. Because he looks back on it and he goes, I remember this moment, I remember this time, I remember what Jesus said and we all wrestled with it. And I remember these statements that he made because now this side of the cross and the giving of the Holy Spirit, I look back on it and go, this is what's happening. This is what happened to me. And I'm so grateful he told us this because in the moment, I really, really struggled. And so there's an anchor here for all of us this side of the cross. So let me give these to you. Seven statements of gospel power. One, verse 37. All that the Father gives to me will come to me. That God the Father has specific people he desires to give to the Son. I'm reminded of Acts 18, where Paul is he's in Corinth and, and, and he's fearing for his life, his life, and in a vision, God comes to him and he says, Paul, don't be afraid, but keep on speaking. Keep on giving the gospel to these Corinthians, for I have many people in this city. What hope did that give to Paul? Paul fears for his life, and 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 what I'm doing actually is it working? Is it, you know, is it is it worth it? And God comes to him, and the encouragement He gives is keep speaking, because I have many people, many specific people in this city that I want that I'm going to give to the Son. I think of the woman at the well. We when we we preached on that weeks ago, an an unlikely convert. Jesus has a specific appointment with her we could look at many many but this is an encouragement to us that God the father has, has specific people he desires to give to the son the second one still in verse 37 those that he gives that the father gives those that the, 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 the father gives will come to the son he says and the, and the one who comes to me I will certainly not cast out. Those that he gives to the son will come to the son. I think of Hebrews 2, 10, 11. The author of Hebrews says, for it was fitting for him, the father, for whom are all things and through whom are all things in bringing many sons to glory. These are believers to perfect the author of their salvation through suffering. He's talking about Jesus for both He who sanctifies, Jesus, and those who are sanctified are all from one Father, for which reason he, Jesus, is not ashamed to call them brethren. In the context of that, he's making declarative statements about the origins of believers. That doesn't really make sense unless God says, I have specific people I'm going to give to the the Son, and they're going to come to you. They're going to come to you, Jesus, in that same section of Scripture, Jesus, uh, uh, the writer of Hebrews, quotes from the Old Testament and says of Jesus, where Jesus stands before the Father and says, behold, all the children whom you've given to me. I don't know about you, but if you have kids and you have a, if you have a generally good relationship with the kids, they want to come to you. You know, you see my, my daughter, she comes and she loves to come and hug me and kiss me. I kind of feel like she wants candy later. and Sometimes she asks me for that, you know. But I think there's a genuine spirit that the Lord's given me this child and she wants to come to me. So it is with those whom the Father gives to the Son that they want to come to the Son. The third one. Jesus will not turn away anyone who comes to Him. Those who come to me, I will certainly not cast out. How encouraging that is! that? How much encouraging is that if you know your own story, your own struggles, and you look at yourself and you say, there's no moral perfection here. There's nothing in my history that warrants Jesus turning me away at the, at the foot of the cross. He says, anyone who comes to me, I won't cast out. What hope does that give you for the co-worker, for the friend, for the family member, for the child? That you look at and just go. Is there any hope here? If they, if they could only come to the cross. To the foot of the cross. That's all that's needed. And Jesus says I'm not going to look at them and go unworthy. Get out of here. Anyone who comes I'll, I'll bring them in. I'm, I'm not going to turn you away because you're ugly. I'm not going to turn you away because you're unfit. I'm not going to turn you away because of. No, no, you're welcome. Come into my sheepfold. That's so encouraging. But I find, this, I find the next one even more. This, this one when I was looking at, this one really just hit home with me. The next one. That the, that the Son receives you because He submits to the Father's will. Look at this. In verse 37, He says, "The father, All that the Father gives to Me will come to Me, and the one who comes to Me I won't cast out. Now let me ask you this. Why? Why does Jesus not cast you out? In verse 38, he says, For I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. Do you see that? Jesus doesn't cast us out because he submits to the will of the Father. It's the will of the Father that, the, that, that, that he welcome anyone who comes to him. You know, oftentimes in our culture, we, we talk about submission and we, we treat it as an ugly, dirty word. L- let me ask you, how are you doing at submitting to, to God this side of the cross, if you're a Christian, in, in moral conformity? I'll be honest, I'm struggling. Me? I don't do that well. I constantly have to go back to the, to the gospel. I have to constantly going back to the admonishments. Put on the new self. Put on the new self, Austin. You're new in Christ. You've been clothed in His righteousness. Now live out of that. And I go through the battle of everyday life and I get to the end of the day. My shield's got dents in it. My helmet's cracked. Uh, my sword's not as sharp as it should be. But, uh, m- that My submission to the will of God is, is weak and sometimes it's even just broken. But the Son is perfect in His submission. We... We treat submission like it's a weak virtue. I'll tell you, it's probably the strongest virtue that I have ever seen. Because Jesus submits to the will of the Father and He doesn't turn us away. Isn't that wonderful news? Isn't that glorious? He's completely faithful to the will of the Father. Now, let's not throw the baby out with the bathwater. It's not that the, the Son has this wonderful will to save us and the Father wants to crush us. The Father in His justice must destroy sin but it's within the context i'm not going somewhere else this is the context of what jesus says it's the will of the father to save people and he does it through the calling and the keeping of the son it's not that the father's will and the son's will are in direct opposition they're in the same in fact they have to be in the same for the gospel to work So there's a golden virtue in this. That Jesus has come down out of heaven to to keep or or to do the will of the Father. And that's to save people. That all who comes to Him, He's not going to turn you away. And then the next one, that the will of the Father is that Jesus keeps you through the gift of faith. Look at verse 39 and 40. I'm going to read these two verses. I'm going to ask you, what's the distinct difference between those two verses? Because when you read them, it's almost like Jesus says the same thing twice. But, but I, I, see, I see one key thing that stands out here that's different. Verse 39 says, this is the will of him who sent me, that of all that he has given me, I lose nothing but raise it up on the last day. Verse 40, for this is the will of my Father, that everyone who beholds the Son and believes in him will have eternal life, and I myself will raise him up on the last day. You see the, the difference there? In verse 39, it says it's the will of God that Jesus keep you. That all that the Father gives me, I don't lose them. I, I hang on to them. In verse 40, the difference there is the will of the Father is that everyone who believes and beholds the Son has eternal life. And so, my best explanation for that is what Jesus is saying is that the keeping of Jesus and your beholding and believing in Him go together. That the gift of faith that's given to you is secured by the Son. And and that's wonderful, encouraging news and it should be for us. That it's not up to you to keep your own belief. It's the, 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 the final determining factor in whether or not you not only become a Christian, but you stay a Christian. As, as Nathan explained to the children that in your justification, you're starting the race. It's not up to you to keep on running. That it's Jesus who keeps you by making your feet move. Even when you look down and you go, I've fallen flat on my face. The virtue of faith is not intrinsic in and of yourself. The virtue of faith is in the value of its object. Let me say that again. I'm sure I quoted that from somebody because that doesn't sound like something I would say. So I don't know who I quoted it from. It sounds pretty good. Anyways, you know, the the value of faith isn't intrinsic in and of yourself. Sometimes we treat faith like like it's a l- uh, like it's an internal virtue that that we have in and of ourselves. You know, a- almost like the ability to run fast or y- you know, in intelligence to make a 100 on a math quiz or you know anything like this but the the virtue of faith is in the value of its object faith puts its trust completely in its object therefore any virtue that you can point to in faith goes straight through that person to the object you put it put you put your faith in namely christ okay there's a whole sermon on that somewhere okay but just as a, as a clarification statement, I think it's important that we recognize that. And so the keeping of Jesus by the will of the Father happens through opening our eyes to His glory and our need for Him, and that's faith. Number six. The end goal of His keeping us is to be re- is to be resurrected to new life. You see this is he brings this out continually that the will of God I lose nothing people believe I'm not doing my own will so that and I will raise them up on the last day and I will raise them up on the last day. It's not your best life now. It's your best life to come. That's why Paul writes to Titus and he speaks to Titus. He says that we are looking for the blessed hope of the appearing of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. He says, Titus, always put this before you. Always put this before your people. Present sufferings are producing for us an eternal weight of glory, Paul says in Romans 8. Okay, our best life for us, our best life for, for our relatives who are aging and who are showing signs of coming towards the end of our life and we want them to hold on and, and that is a good thing but our greater hope is that they would know Jesus and that they would, they would cling to Him so that on the last day He might complete His task and raise them up. Jesus says, I'm going to keep you for that purpose to resurrected new life. And then the last one. Those who come to God for salvation come because God draws them by making the general call of the gospel an effective call. Verse 44, Jesus answers to them. They're grumbling. They're grumbling about this. And notice, they're they're not grumbling about what we grumble, what we would grumble about. We we read this text and we grumble about the sovereignty of God that's, that's lifted up in this text. They're grumbling about the fact that Jesus has said, I've come down out of heaven. This is just proof that each generation battles its own, th- has its own theological battles. Not every f- everyone is going to battle with the same things. But Jesus responds to them in their grumbling and he says, don't grumble among yourselves. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him and I will raise him up on the last day. I heard R.C. Heard Sproul, ex- Sproul explain that word draw a- as meaning compel. And he pointed to uh, to John chapter four, where uh, John and um, no, excuse me, Peter, Peter and John are seized and put in prison. Um, and he says that that's that's what you're looking at there. Now, to be sure, that's a graphic illustration, but to be sure, people don't come to Jesus kicking and screaming; they come hungering and thirsting. That's why the call that Jesus gives isn't everybody who's kicking and screaming, come here. No, he says everyone who's hungering and thirsting, come to me. As a as a footnote here, what Jesus moves to right after this is, is really eye-opening, and there's a separate sermon here, I think maybe one day you might end up coming back to it, but let me just kind of pin this on you if you want something to dig into and study let me ask you this why does Jesus right following that why does he why does he quote from the Old Testament he says it is written in the prophets and they all shall be taught of God that's going back to Isaiah 54 verse 13 which has a very very close parallel to Jeremiah 31 34 why does he quote that when he says you can't come to me unless the father draws you and then he quotes Back in Isaiah. Why does he why does he do that? What is Jesus saying about the nature of the drawing of God? I'll leave that to your own studies, but let me let me let me just say this where the Jews had previously quoted from Deuteronomy and said, Moses gave us bread. Moses gave us bread. Jesus redirects them to Isaiah. And he says, you think I'm an earthly prophet when I'm really the heavenly initiator of a new covenant. There's the footnote. It's more for your, for your study. So these, these seven statements about the power of God in the gospel. Um, let me throw out one argument to the contrary because I don't want to leave that. Is the drawing of God here is the drawing of God here referring to the general call of the gospel to everyone? Is what Jesus is saying is no one can come to Jesus unless they actually hear the gospel. Right? No, uh, it, it, unless the gospel is actually given to them. It's the general call. And the final determination of their accepting Jesus rests on whether or not they believe or not. The final determination rests on that. Is that it? When it says, all that the Father gives to me will come to me, does does God kind of throw a lifeboat out there and say, I want people in this boat, and now let's see who jumps in? Or is it more specific than that? I mean, it's a a general question. I think we have to wrestle with that. Here's my struggle with it. I can't make that square with this narrative. I, I can't really make it square with, if I'm honest, I can't. Because Jesus is very specific here in the context of of people who are not believing. He's very specific in what he says. I I think it also doesn't really square with what Jesus says later towards the end of this chapter, which we'll get to maybe next week or the following. It doesn't explain why Jesus points out Judas. Judas. He says, for this reason, speaking of Judas unbelief, I've said to you that no one can come to me unless the Father, unless it's been granted to him by the Father. Nor does it really square with things we'll get to later in John chapter eight and chapter twelve. So I, that's why I can't I can't pull that out and say that because, because of the nature of the context of what's in here. I'll I'll move on from that. Let me make make some implications. But Put a a summary statement. When when you read this, read what Jesus says and the power of God in the gospel. Let let me say that I think think it's true this is what's happened to you. If you're a Christian, this is what's happened to you. Before you were blind and now you see. And you give God the glory for that. And you and we say, it's, I, I'm not, if I'm honest, I can't keep myself. I need Christ to do that for me. And praise God, he promises to do that for me. Then when we pray for other people, we pray, Lord, intervene. We don't host that up and go, well, God, I know you can't really do anything because that would be a violation of their freedom. But we pray, Lord, overcome them remove the scales pull back the veil show them the value of Jesus do this work please because we love those whom we want to come to know the gospel to come to know Jesus through the gospel so let me put some implications out one if you struggle with this doctrine of election let me add, let me just say i pray that you would look at texts like this not as a skeleton in the closet or not as something that that i'm just very uncomfortable with but that it's it's an encouragement that it's an anchor when your faith is weak and that's what john the human author i think that's what god as the sovereign author intends is that these are anchors for us when our faith is weak and even non-existent second that the glory of god is a major theme in the scriptures it's there, it's written on every page. And the sovereignty of God in salvation is why he gets the glory and not you. There's the responsibility of man, and that is a real responsibility. That's why I started with that. That that's a real responsibility. We don't ignore that. But there's a responsibility of each person to respond to that gospel. But when a person responds, they don't get the glory. You don't get the glory for your own salvation. God gets that glory. And it's because he opens your eyes to your need for Jesus and coming to him. Let me shift because I, I, I know there are many who l- love those doctrines of grace and cling to them. But, but like I said earlier, there's our tendency to move to one side of that balance or the other. So let me say this. If you love that doctrine of election, let me caution you. God doesn't need you to defend his sovereignty and salvation any more than an elephant needs you to blaze a trail for him through the jungle. Okay? Doesn't mean we can't have conversations about him. But here's what happens, oftentimes when you when you love that doctrine, you get into a conversation with somebody and it becomes a heated debate with somebody who challenges that doctrine. And what happens is there's a debate that ensues that basically has the flavor that, elect that whether or not this person conforms to your understanding of election is a determinant factor in their salvation. Let me encourage you, resist the temptation to go there first. Resist that temptation and ask rather, or, or try and direct that conversation, am I talking to a genuine believer? Does, do, if I know the gospel, does this person know the gospel? And you, ha- you can have that question without going to that aspect of election, but oftentimes we go there first. Am I talking to somebody who comes to Jesus as the bread of life or another reason? That should drastically, that posture should drastically affect our conversations with people. And the third one, third implication. If God is omnipotent and omniscient in salvation, that means you're not. Let's call a spade a spade. So run from the temptation to confer that sovereignty on yourself or anyone else when it comes to the potential of the gospel. I say this because this oftentimes <coughs> reflects our conversations with people. That this doctrine, and what's, what's, what Jesus is saying here should produce produce warmth and deep concerns for the souls of people when in oftentimes, what happens is we run the other direction and it, we become very cold and callous that's the honest truth but it should produce warmth and genuine deep concern for the souls of people when you look at people you don't know what's happening in their hearts you can't really see that and, and if you look at scripture this is a drumbeat that goes throughout scripture this is what Paul can write to the Galatians and the Galatians who are moving away from the, gen- from the true gospel and yet he still calls them brethren. Right? It's how the author of Hebrews can plead with his audience to have faith and yet when they're turning away from Jesus and yet have confidence that, as, as he says in, in uh, Hebrews 6, that God is not unjust so as to forget you. He's, he's confident they're going to him, bring him to repentance. In fact, the only place where we really see that omniscience shown is here with jesus and it's for a reason it's because he's divine it's to highlight his divinity and yet even here with the very son of god who looks out and he knows the hearts of every single person that's there he's looking at judas and he sees him and yet he gives the general call with the gospel there is a warmth there and there is a deep concern for the souls of people Do you see that balance? That's the key thing I want us to see is to see that balance. Christ is modeling both evangelism and discipleship for us here. And it warrants us seeing it and recognizing it. The same sun that hardens clay softens wax. So when the gospel is given, this is what it does. Now the phenomenal thing, and this is where the metaphor breaks down, is the phenomenal work of the gospel is God taking clay Ezekiel I think, if I'm thinking right, and stone hearts and turning it into wax, right? Okay, but you're not sovereign. You can't see that and so having the deep concern for people and knowing that if this person is going to be saved, it's through the general call of the gospel and that's my responsibility. I'm a conduit. I'm I'm a big pipe or small pipe that has the, 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 that has the power of the gospel simply to just give it to someone else and pray, Lord, save this person. Do your work with this person. As Jesus gives the example in the parable of the, the sower, he goes out into the field and he sows the seed and he goes to sleep and he rises in the morning and the crop's grown. He doesn't know how it happened. He just knows that it does. It's the same way with you. If you're a Christian and there are people that you say, I wish this person would be saved, you know, but God's got to change their heart. Go sow seed. Are you sowing seed with them? Because if you believe God's sovereign in the gospel, then he does it through means, and the only way he's going to do it is through your giving or someone else's giving of the gospel. Don't chuck that out the window. And the last one. and This is just really a summary. I encourage you to posture, posture yourself towards people as if their salvation depends on their ability to see Jesus. That's where Paul, he said, we'll strive with you. You know, he'd go into the synagogues, need to argue with people. I don't think that was in a, let me just try and trump you with a whole bunch of verses. Let me try and explain Jesus from the Scriptures to you. Posture yourself towards people as if their salvation depended on their ability to see Jesus. Help them to see But speak and pray with the confidence that it's God who draws people to the Son and it's the Son who keeps them through faith. That balanced understanding of the gospel and and God's work in salvation is what we need. It keeps us rooted when when we look out across the culture and so many leave. God's word isn't failing. He's sifting. And we fall on our knees and pray, Lord, keep me faithful. Keep me faithful because in the midst of the sifting of culture, I know my own weakness and my own temptation and I don't want to leave. But I feel the tug. Lord, keep me. And He sends you to the Scripture. He sends you to His Word. And He sovereignly works in such a way that the next day you go, Lord, thank you. I praise you, Lord. And we interact with people whether they're lost or whether they're saved, whether they're struggling in their faith or whether they have none at all. And we say, Lord, They need the gospel. Help me to speak it to them. Help me to speak it and then you do your work of taking the seed and growing the plant. And help me to rest easy in it. So that's my closing. Sorry, I didn't didn't warn you we were closing. That's that's my closing. So I hope that's encouraging to you. Because I find it encouraging there is the gospel has vast potential and it is for all people and it's the means through which the power of God is made evident in saving people. So let me close with a prayer and then a benediction. Father God, I thank you. Thank you, Father, that you are merciful and that you are kind and you are Just, And that Father, you have seen fit to save people through the giving of your Son. I thank you that it's your will to save souls. And that you give people to the Son. And the Son doesn't turn them away no matter how ugly their life looks. Because the Son submits to your will to save souls. And that He keeps us through the gift of faith. So that at the end of the day, every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of the Father. I don't see any other way that that happens in Scripture, Father. It's why I cling to the doctrines I cling to. Because I see it so clearly. Father that, pray, Father, that we would cling to your word. We would cling to your scriptures, cling to your promises. Even when we don't fully understand them, even when we f- can't fully square one with another, that we'd look at the scriptures and say, this, it's here, it, it works because people are being saved and the gospel is going forth and you are getting glory. I can't explain all of it but I see it and so I trust in it. May it be so for us, Lord. Thank you for your grace and I thank you for your mercy. I thank you for the potential of the gospel that it is for all people. And I thank you, Father, that your power is in that very gospel. It's in Jesus' precious name that I pray. Amen.